happy to be here. And so if you guys have a Bible, you can open it up to Luke chapter 5. And so Luke chapter 5, we're, we're in this series of Meals with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. So we're wanting to trace this theme in the Gospel of Luke of how Jesus and his disciples together engage in what we would call kingdom hospitality. And so this year, we're kind of wanting to really underline as we go through and, and study through books of the Bible and just in our missional communities, our fight clubs, this, this biblical notion of radically ordinary hospitality. So hospitality, the way we've defined it, hospitality is not a southern tea party where you invite your, your best friends and social connections, have a fun time, dress up, and uh, pretend like everything's okay. No, biblical hospitality is really inviting the stranger into your home. And by stranger, that doesn't necessarily mean a strange person, although it can be, uh, if you invite me. But it means that you're just inviting someone who is, is a little bit unknown to you, who's, out, who's maybe considered someone who's outside your normal circles of interaction, and most directly, someone who is outside the church, outside the people of God. And so we want to, to see that through these meals with Jesus. And so uh, there's, a, there's a great little book by Tim Chester that I'm going to quote a little bit this morning, hopefully to make up for, for my lack for being sick, and, and I love the way he frames this, and we said this last week. There are three ways the New Testament completes the sentence, the Son of Man came. So three different ways, three different verses. First, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. Then the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19, 10. And then Luke 7, 34, which we looked at last week, the Son of Man came, has come eating and drinking. So he says the first two statements are statements of purpose. So why did Jesus come? He came to serve. He come, came to give his life as a ransom. And he came to seek and save the lost. So why did Jesus come? This is why he came. But the third statement is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. And so we want to believe that God's word not only gives us the mission, but gives us the methods. And although those may have to be applied differently in different contexts and different times in history, we believe that it is no accident that we see Jesus not just coming, showing us what we're to do, to seek and save the lost, to serve, and ultimately to be served by him through his perfect death, but to see others come to know him as the great king he is around the table. So let's pray this morning uh, after we read the text. So Luke 5, 27 through 32. After this, he went out, that is Jesus, and saw a tax collector named Levi, also known as Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others, or as Matthew says it in his gospel, tax collectors and sinners, reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. So notice, Jesus is there, his disciples are there too, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Father, we pray today that you would align our hearts with the mission and the methods of our Savior. We confess right now that uh, we need you as we've sang. We need you, oh, how we need you. 
Every hour we need you, and we need you in this hour. We need you to help us to be attentive. We, help, we need you to help us to be active listeners. We need you, Holy Spirit, to, to help the truth not to be merely concepts and ideas, but to pierce our hearts. And we trust you to do all these things for the sake of your kingdom and our King, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, our world and our history, sadly, has often been sorted out based on who's in and who's out. And one of the pieces that's so sad in our history, particularly as a country in the United States, is a history of segregation. And so where we saw most clearly in this history of segregation, uh, this distinction was in restaurants that would say whites only, and even in water fountains that would say whites only. Because there was this, even though we don't live still in first century Israel, there's, this, there's just this thing about eating with people and drinking with people that really makes a huge statement. Uh, later, we're going we're to think about this a little bit, but, but really, as, as we see in these Gospels and we look in these meals, is that we are doing theology in the way that we eat with other people. The people that we open our hearts to, the people that we open our homes to, or just in general how we open our hearts and how we open our homes reveals what we really believe about who God is, about what He's done in Christ, about who we are and about who other people are, and also about what He is calling us to do. Now, we have seen that although these things happen in our society and in our lives, there's oftentimes already been many laws in place to prevent such things of happening. There's oftentimes been great education about such things, and yet there's been little change. And that's because we don't merely change through education, we change through actual obedience. We change not only through having our minds enlightened, but we change through having our actions transformed. And so a parent could tell a child, you know, that's wrong that restaurants will only welcome certain people, or that's wrong that certain water fountains would only be open to certain people, but you know what would really disciple that child and really show that child that this was true is when the home that that child lived in now had people of different ethnicities and different backgrounds at their table. And largely today, such issues like this are, are, are very systematic and beyond the relational level, but to a large degree, we still have much talk about equality and much talk about welcome, but little difference when it comes to our everyday tables and everyday relationships. And so that's not the main topic of our, of our message today, but it's to show us that who we eat with and how we eat with them reveals what we believe about even the very basic subject of discipleship. So when we think about discipleship, sadly so often it's been confused, particularly in the religious South, to issues only pertaining to maybe what we call cold call evangelism. So if we talk about making disciples, immediately your mind goes to, I'm going to have this five-minute conversation with someone where I tell them that they have a decision to make about following Christ, and they make that decision or not, and we move on, 
having done little to actually welcome them into our lives and into our homes, but we made disciples. Really, all that we did was make decisions, and oftentimes those flimsy at best. On the other side of that, discipleship can be turned into a mere matter of curriculum. So we think of when you hear the word disciples or discipleship, you think of this, this funny word in the church world called follow-up. Right? So how are we going to do evangelism, and then how are we going to do follow-up? And follow-up usually gets turned into some type of program to where we say, all right, now we've kind of got these people to pray this prayer. Now how are we actually going to disciple them? How are we going to really, to get crass, keep them sticking around? How are we going to get them to keep showing up to our services, to our stuff? And in the middle of all this, though, as we look into God's Word and we see these meals in this way, is that Jesus just doesn't have things cut up into these clear and neat containers. And this is why when we talk about discipleship at Matthew's Table Church, we're talking about a call to submit all of our lives to Jesus as Lord. We're talking about following Jesus in the stuff of everyday life. We're talking about a discipleship that often sometimes begins even before someone has been converted. And I know that may sound strange to you, but we're actually showing people who've yet to come to know Jesus what it looks like when you do come to know Jesus, when you do love Him, when you do love His people, and when you do love people who've yet to come to know Him. This is why we say that we make disciples through life on life together. Life on life with God. Life on life with each other. We make it through life in community. Whereas we'll see in our text today, we don't just call people to the table, but we come together around that table with Jesus and his other disciples. And we do it through life on mission. Because we want to open our tables not merely to God, to Jesus. We don't want to merely open our tables to those who are already following him. But we want to always create space at our tables for those who have yet to know him and may think they've been written off by him, or maybe they're the people who've already written him off, and we want to say that you are welcome. We want to see our disciple-making connected to our tables. We think about hospitality. We want to see our hearts opened and our homes open to disciple-making around the table. So what does this look like? We see, see some things from this text, I think, that helps us. The first thing is, is that disciple-making hospitality sees and calls. And so notice verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Jesus, the one amazing thing about Jesus, and if you want to go and study this in the Gospels, is that Jesus sees people. He sees people. He sees you right now. He doesn't just see a crowd. He sees you he sees people. And Jesus often sees the people that many other people wish they could unsee. A tax collector was a traitor. A tax collector here, Levi Matthew, was a, a fellow Israelite who had decided to work for the empire of Rome so that he might not only make a living but get rich off of exploiting his very own kinsmen. Levi, or Matthew, would have been a person that made people sick at their stomach. He would have been the white-collar criminal who was preying on the poor. 
He would have been the Bernie Madoff. He would have been the, if you know who that is, he would have been the, the corrupt businessman who was scheming everyone, and, and yet he's not getting busted because he's protected by the Roman Empire. He's the type of person you're thinking, I wish he'd turn his head so I'd throw a rock and hit him, but I really just wish he didn't exist. And Jesus sees him. And Jesus calls him. And he calls him to follow him. So Jesus sees people many people want to unsee. And Jesus calls people to follow him who many other people just want to call out. We see people sometimes through the lens, well, if we do see them, of, I just wish they would get what they deserved. I just wished that I could, I, I, if I could punish them, that would be great. But Jesus sees Matthew, sees Levi, and he calls him to follow him. An encouraging thing for us is that oftentimes many people that we might see and we might like to call, we may think there's no use, it's a waste of time, it's, it's not worth it. It's that through the power of God's grace, even such people like Levi, this traitor, tax collector, sitting at this tax booth, praying on the poor, praying on people he should be loving, can be changed through the power of the grace of God. Sometimes when I walk through my house at home, I try to just not see certain things, particularly like the kitchen when it's messed up. So, because you know, if I think if I don't see it, then I'm not responsible for it. You know, so if I can, and Cassie, she's with the little kids, but she would attest to probably witnessing me do this, right? So it's just like, if, if I didn't notice it, right, so I start to hit, bam, focus. You know, then, then I don't got to deal with it, basically. Out of sight, out of mind is the old phrase. But in terms of wanting our children to be discipled and to grow up into more mature adults than their dad is, in this area especially, is, is teaching them to see. And so often when we're cleaning the house, I have to tell them, I want you to walk, because they'll be like their dad in miniature form, and they'll say, I, I thought everything looked fine. Well, it looks good enough to me. And I have to say, all right, I want you to walk through your room with your mom's eyes. I know that may be scary, <laughs> but I want you to go into your room with your mama's eyes, and I want you to see it how she sees it. How is she going to see, I know the clothes are in the drawer, but is, is the drawer shut? You know, and I'm talking, trying to talk to myself in this too, but it changes everything when we learn to see the world through another's eyes. And for those of us who would be disciples, discipleship really begins when we walk into our everyday lives and we begin to see the world and in particularly see other people through the eyes of Jesus. It begins in the home when we begin to see our, our spouses or our children, but it begins, it goes beyond that and how we see our co-workers, how we see the people in our, in our missional communities, how we see the people in our fight clubs, how we walk outside and we see our neighbors standing there, how we drive down the road and we see people in our city, how we see those who are homeless, how we see those who are in need, how we see people so often we wish that we could unsee. And we find ourselves, if we are in the footsteps of Jesus, beginning not to sort people and to categorize people, 
but to love people, to pray for people. Disciple-making begins with seeing, with praying, and then we ask how the Lord might invite us to call them. And this is how Jesus saw people. He didn't see people as projects. He didn't see people as problems. Jesus knew his Bible. Jesus knew the story of God, that every person is created in his image. The enemy that you may hate is created in the image of God. The co-worker you may want to punch in the throat is created in the image of God. The family member that irritates you to death, the, the white-collar criminals, the blue-collar criminals, created in the image of God. And it's such people we're to see, and it's such people that we're to begin to have the boldness to call after Jesus. And unless we believe that they're the ultimate factor in their lives, or we are the ultimate factor in their lives, we can see here in Jesus calling Matthew the power of the Son of God who can turn and who can change the worst of the worst into those who do things like we see next. Verse 29. Not only does disciple-making hospitality begin with seeing people and calling them to Christ, Disciple-making hospitality invites people, many people, to belong before they believe. Or to fellowship before faith. Or to be friends before they're actually family. We see this happening. Levi makes a great feast in his house. This would have been, this would have been expensive, but Levi's got this money. He's exploited many people. He's preyed upon many people, but to, to show this fruit of a heart change in his life, now he goes and he says, instead of, instead of taking from people, I'm going to give to people. In my house, my home is going to be this, this grand central station for an encounter with the one who has changed my life. So Levi makes this great feast in his house, and it says, and there was a large company of tax collectors. What Levi did was within his vocational sphere, within the sphere that he worked, within the sphere that he dwelt, within the sphere that he sinned, he said, guys, I want you to come to my house. I want you to come and hang out here. There's someone I want you to meet. And others, it seems like Levi's home, Matthew's home, became this place where there was this open invitation to where people from his vocational everyday life and work sphere were welcome, but also anyone else who wanted to come. And in the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew Levi himself tells this story, he says sinners. That is, he had in his mind anybody that's been thought they were outside the lines is welcome here at this table. Anybody who's publicly known as someone that is not religiously accepted can come here and recline at this table with Jesus. Again, we see disciple-making is taking place because now Jesus, what Jesus has done to Levi, to Matthew, now Matthew is going and doing himself. Jesus sees and calls, now Matthew is seeing and calling. Because discipleship is not only our submission to Christ as Lord in all of life, it's teaching others to do the same. And when we hang out around Jesus enough in his word, 
And in our lives, it begins to copy Him. It begins to emulate Him, to imitate Him. And that's what disciple-making is. In this day and time, disciple is not just a, a Jesus term. All of these rabbis, all of these leaders, any, even philosophers like, like Plato, they had disciples. And what they just did is they just followed around behind their feet. They just walked everywhere they went, watched what they did, took notes, and said, all right, now that's how I'm going to live. And so Levi is doing this. Jesus met Matthew where he was, as he was, and now Matthew is welcoming other people to where he is, but he's calling them to come as they are. And the place where they meet is around a table, a feast. And this is not insignificant. One commentator, Peter Leithart, says it this way, For Jesus' feast was not just a metaphor for the kingdom. As Jesus announced the feast of a kingdom, he also brought into reality this through his own feasting. So again, it's not just a concept. It's not just a theory. It's not just the kingdom is coming and a great feast will be here. Jesus is now going to demonstrate in the present what God has promised in the future. So he says, unlike many theologians, Jesus did not come preaching in an ideology, promoting ideas, or teaching moral maxims. He came teaching about the feast of the kingdom and he came feasting in the kingdom. Jesus did not merely go around talking about eating and drinking. He went around eating and drinking. And he did it a lot. And he did it with those who normally were not welcome. Those outside the lines. And in doing so, he challenges the religious establishment by allowing fellowship or friendship, or belonging before faith, before belief, before family. Now in doing this, Jesus isn't saying, hey, everybody's okay. You know, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter whether you've submitted. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is, you can come hang out here before you get all that figured out. This is a safe space. You can come and you still have your doubts. You can come, you still have your unbelief. You can come and you're still, you're still a tax collector. You hadn't changed like Matthew. You can come and you're still a public sinner. But you can come to this table. So one person said, the problem here is not the party because the Pharisees knew God's kingdom was going to be a party. Their objection was with the guest list. For the Pharisees then and for modern-day Pharisees now who pride themselves on their holiness and their self-righteousness based on how they compare to other people and their spirituality, it would have only made sense if Jesus would have threw a feast and they were the ones invited. For the Pharisees, this was a denial of holiness. For the Pharisees, this was review revealing Jesus to be someone who didn't care about God's holiness. That's what they thought about. Does Jesus not care about purity? Does Jesus not understand the risk at Bob here with bringing these people to this table? But as Jesus here, the word of God in the flesh, reveals the heart of God to his people and the mission of God again to Israel and the nations, what we see is that for Jesus, the Pharisees' boundaries that they had put up, those were the actual denials of God's holiness. You see, Jesus never lessens the law. Jesus actually takes us to the heart of the law. And the heart of God's law was that people would see their need of Him. 
There are people would see that there is no amount of obedience that you can enact in your own strength that will ever be enough to bring you into the presence of a holy God. The Pharisees, by thinking they could actually pull that off by themselves through their own good works, they were the ones who had lessened God's holiness. They were the ones who were saying, we can ascend the mount of the Lord. We can pull this off. And Jesus is saying, you guys are the ones who've missed it all. And so Jesus invites these people here to belong before they believe. Jesus sits, Levi sits, the disciples sit. This is the way of Jesus. And his way is always also the truth and the life. I don't know that any of you guys watched it. It probably sounds boring, but the State of the Union was either earlier this week or the week before. And if, if nothing reveals division in our culture and country, just watch something like that. And, and, and in preparing for this and, and watching that, seeing the modern-day holiness codes, as it were, like, there's somebody saying, you will only clap for this. And then there's this other group saying, and you will only clap for this. You will, only dress, you will dress this way, because this is what shows who's in and who's out. And others on both sides, you will dress this way, because this shows who is in and who's out. And both sides of the so-called aisle have their thought police, have their boundaries, have their lines. And whether we'd like to believe it or not, there are powerful people in powerful places who are going to make sure people toe the line and things don't get mixed up or they will lose their positions. Or I think, probably, and maybe I'm conspiracy theory crazy, they might get a bullet in the back of the head in the woods. I've probably just watched too many movies. But I thought how weird it would have been to after that for those thought police, those play, powerful players who say, you, you know, you gotta, you gotta dress this way, do this thing. If they would have walked by and there was a side room and it would have all been mixed up of people from all sides, parties, and they would have just been eating a meal together and laughing and having fun and enjoying one another even though they may have disagreed on very significant things. And I can just imagine the, the thought police, as it were, just slamming the door shut and saying, you, you can't let the media see this. This will be too confusing. They might actually think that you agree with the other person. We can't do that because we know that it's all about perception. That our power is only as strong as we can maintain what people see. It would be too confusing. It would be too messy. We've got to keep it very clear. This is what means you're in. This is what means you're out. And sadly, as I, I thought about that, I thought this is exactly how it can be in the church as well. This is exactly how it can be in our mission, is that we create these, these very clear lines that Jesus has not created, that God has not created so that we can maintain our so-called purity, so that we can maintain our so-called perception in the world. And here Jesus sits. 
And he's sitting and he's calling us to a discipleship that welcomes others to fellowship with us around the table before they're, they're anywhere near where we may wish they were in terms of their beliefs and their lifestyles. For Levi, for Matthew, it began with his workplace. Again, it's the tax collectors. These people he knew that he associated with within his world of work. I think what we're called to, to ask ourselves is who are the people that we work with, or if you're in school, who, who you're in class with, that you need to see, and then you need to say, what, what would it look like for me to get this person who I don't think either knows Jesus or is enjoying a life-giving relationship with him to my table? Whether that's a table at a coffee shop, a restaurant, or actually in your home. But to remember, you are not at your place of work or you are not in your school by accident. You have been sent there with a divine appointment. You don't live on your street by accident. You're not in your home with your family by accident. God has said, this is where I want you. Every person in this room in Christ is right where you're at under a divine appointment. And God has simply said, I'm going to let your employer pay for your missionary work. It's amazing if you think about it. I've, I've planted you here. You're in my sleeper cell, whatever that means, right? In this place, so that you can show people and invite people to the feast of the kingdom of Christ. When we begin to see that, it changes the way that we think about the street that we live on. It begins to matter that I know my neighbor's name. I want to challenge you right now. Six-month challenge. I just made that up. I'm going to know that the, the eight closest homes to me, I'm going to know the names of the people that live there. Because in our privatized society, sadly, many of us don't even know them. We don't know their name. And I can get you a little magnet where you can write them on there if you want it. If you're a student, many of you live in halls or suites. And you may know those people's names, but if, if you don't, I want to challenge you. I'm going to know who, their names. And then next step, maybe I, I give myself lots of grace and patience. I'm just going to learn their names. Whether that means I knock on their door and say, here's cookies, if people still do that. Or I just make it a, I'm going to start being a walker and start walking, and then I'm going to try to not just know their name, but I'm going to try to learn something about them, where they work, do they have children, if, 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 if you're in school, I'm going to learn, I'm going to make sure I know where they're from, I'm just going to try to learn something about their story, so step one, I just want to see them, hey, there's people that live around me, they exist, step two, I want to know them, story, and then step three, and some of you may be faster than this, I'm going to have a meal with them. And maybe that meal isn't in my home. Some of you, that may not feel safe or whatever, but you, that's why we have each other. And we partner together. Just, just this past week, Melanie had us over to have a meal with her neighbor. And it was, it was so much fun. And we, and we got to know him. And he's a big talker, and so it was easy. So it, anybody can do this. Or you may say, I'm going to team up with some people, and we're going to have a little party for our, neighbor, for our block. I'm just, I know these eight people, and I'm going to say, hey, we all live here beside each other. 
What if we got to know each other a little more? I'll pull the grill out in my front yard and let's just cook out and talk. And in all this, you're doing it with a gospel intentionality, but you're doing it in the context of a relationship, and you know you can do it because this is the way of Christ. So lastly, disciple-making hospitality will challenge our view of health and need. So as we get to know other people, as we see and call, as we allow people to belong before they believe, or to fellowship before faith, or to, to be friends before they're actually a part of the family of God, we need to see that, that all this is leading, though, to an encounter, an experience, an explanation, a knowing of who Jesus is and how he is good news for all people. So this challenges our view of what health is, of what need is. Notice Jesus says, the Pharisees grumble, why are you doing this? Verse 31, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus here is saying, this table right here that I'm eating at, this picture is what I'm all about. If you want to know what I'm all about, if you want to know why I came, that I came to seek and save the lost, if you want to know that I came not to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, how do, how do you see that I'm actually serious about that? Look at this table. And how do you see that you don't get it, Pharisees, look at your table. Because what Jesus is not saying here is, hey, Pharisees, you're well. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to go over here and focus on these people who aren't. You know, if we read in Matthew, we see that Jesus points out to them, he says, why don't you go and read Hosea? Because it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What Jesus is saying here is that he has come as the only one who can bring healing for anyone. But the only way that anyone, whether a rebellious person or a religious person, can have that is they have got to see their need. Jesus came for the needy. The reality is we are all in equal need of him. That person whom you might see and you might think, wow, that person's life is jacked up. The gospel begins with us seeing we're all equally jacked up. Some of us through just our families of origin, others of us through our own personalities. We just learn more adaptive ways of being jacked up. We just learn more functional ways of getting along in the world. We learned how to turn our anxieties into success. We learned how to, to turn our dysfunctions into deliverances. But what Jesus is saying is that everyone needs me. But the good news is, I'm here. I'm here. This table is pointing us all to the cross. This table is a sign of Jesus that he comes to dwell among us. That he takes up residence in our lives. That he doesn't view us as merely projects or pawns 
or notches on his belt. But he views us as people whom he loves and he wants us to see our need of him so that we can then experience that he is enough. But we have got to humble ourselves to come and sit at his table before we will ever open ourselves to allow others to come and sit at ours. We have got to see, first of all, we needed him to invite us to the feast. We needed him to see us. We needed him to call us. We needed him to sacrifice and die for us. We needed him to rise and heal us. And only to the extent that we see we needed that can we then open our lives so that others can experience that. Because you will not invite anyone into your home who is more messy than you've been messy to Jesus' life. But Jesus isn't here to, to wound us with that reality. He's here to grow us through it. He just wants to show us that the same love and grace and patience and openness that he's given us, he wants us to give to others. This is discipleship. We learn to be with Jesus, we learn to become like Jesus, and we learn to do what Jesus did. We are to be disciples. We have to learn to be with Jesus to become like Jesus and do what Jesus did. And as we do that together, we will help each other learn to do that and others do the same. And this requires a few things real quick. It does require we're going to have to see people, but we're going to have to learn to cultivate a passion for people. That heaven is real, the kingdom is real, that hell is real, that hell has broken into people's lives in the present. And heaven can break into people's lives in the present too. It requires patience with real embodied people. We're not talking about a cold call evangelism that gets somebody to sign a card and then we just go on our way and say maybe somebody will follow up. No, we're talking about discipleship in the way of Jesus and it's going to require a lot of patience. It's going to require listening and loving over the period of a long time. It's going to require a proclamation of the whole gospel to the whole person and a demonstration of the whole gospel to the whole person. Tom Chester said this, the teachers of the law created a system that allowed them to feel superior and then lifted not one finger to help others. Think how this might play out today, he says. Today's Pharisees might condemn the poor for their dysfunctional families, but not lift one finger to help. Today's Pharisees might condemn the poor for their excessive drinking, but lift not one finger to ease their pain. Today's Pharisees might condemn the poor for their laziness, but lift not one finger to provide employment. Today's Pharisees might condemn the poor for their abortions, but lift not one finger to adopt unwanted children. He says, I'm not defending dysfunctional families, drunkenness, and so on, but we can't condemn these things at a distance. 
That's what the Pharisees did. That's legalism. We must come alongside both declaring and demonstrating the transforming grace of God. And table fellowship is enacted grace. There's a movie, I don't know if you guys have seen it, uh, called Little Miss Sunshine. I always say I'm not recommending movies because I don't remember what was in it. Forgive me for that. I just want to read you this story as we close and prepare to come to the Lord's table. It's, it's a story of a girl who sort of by default gets through the regional final of the Little Miss Sunshine Beauty Contest. And she lives in a very dysfunctional family. They head off for the pageant. And this little girl, Olive, is awkward. She has big glasses, so it's like this is not going to be good, her entering a beauty contest. And at one point she says, I don't want to be a loser because Daddy hates losers. Her father, Steve Carell, is a failed motivational speaker. So his conversation consists of cliched aphorisms that berate people for being losers. But the irony, of course, is, is that he's a loser and his family's full of losers. At one point, he says, there are two kinds of people in this world, winners and losers. And as he says losers, the, the camera pans through his family. His foul-mouthed father, his suicidal homosexual brother-in-law, his son who refuses to speak, his downtrodden wife desperately trying to hold them all together, and himself, the failed businessman who can't face his failure. And they're thrown together in this old Volkswagen van, which itself is dysfunctional, the door falls off, the horn is on constantly, and every time they want to start it, they've got to push start it. So just imagine if you hadn't seen it, the family all has to get out and push it off. And I remember having to jump start cars when I was growing up, so if you never experienced that, it's very embarrassing. And uh, Tim Chester says, sometimes I look around my congregation and see a bunch of dysfunctional people thrown together, somehow managing to be family. And I smile at the ridiculous grace of God. There's a moment in the film when the family suddenly realizes that Olive, the little girl living in the van, they've left her at the gas station. So we see the van moving across the scene in one direction and they collect her, but of course they couldn't stop. They had to keep the van rolling because they didn't want to have to get out and punch it. So they're rolling through the gas station and they've got to grab her and jerk her in. And then we hear the father's voice. As the van rolls across, he says, no one gets left behind. No one gets left behind. Chester says, that's the church. The place where no one gets left behind. At the film's climax, this dysfunctional family arrives at the beauty contest. It's the epitome of a perfect, respectable, manicured world without blemish or fault but there's this seething undertone of envy and rivalry and arrogance. And these two worlds collide with comic results. And he says, that's what's going on at Levi's at Matthew's party. Two worlds are colliding. Jesus comes crashing into the Pharisees' world of self-reliance, pride, superiority, hypocrisy, and self-justification with his utterly subversive message of God's grace. Levi's party and the stories describing the new gracious thing that God is doing come to a climax in Luke chapter 6 and verse 11. Where the scribes and Pharisees, filled with fury, discuss 
with one another what they might do to Jesus. One person says, one commentator in Luke's gospel, Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. Read that again. Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate, because of who he ate with. When Jesus eats with Levi, the message is clear. Jesus has come for losers. I don't really like that word, but we know what he means, right? Jesus has come for losers, people on the margins, people who've made a mess of their lives, people who are ordinary, people like you and me. Jesus has come for you. The only people left out are those who think they don't need God, the self-righteous and the self-important. Father, we thank you that you come to eat with us. I thank you that you saw and called me before I had it together, and you still see and call me. I thank you that you love each person in this room. And I thank you that you see all the people in our everyday lives and in this neighborhood, engaged, all the people engaged in the common missions that our church serves. And every person in this city, you see them. And God, we pray that you would call them. And we pray, God, that you would lead us to be a people who, like Levi, create feasts and meals so that they might come to repentance. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, each week we respond uh, to the message by an invitation, not to the everyday tables of fellowship, but to another table, to the Lord's table. And before we come, we'd just like to know, we invite you to come if you're a follower of Jesus, but even if you're not, you can not partake of the bread and cup, but you can still stand with us as we pray, and we would be happy to pray for you. But for, for uh, our own just being able to slow down and not rush this time that is so important. We want to take a moment and ask the Spirit to, to help us think through a few things, maybe where we need to repent and believe. It could be in light of our message this morning or just in light of what God's doing in your life right now. Maybe an area where you need to ask for healing or help. Maybe the answer to what is good news for your need today. Or maybe there's someone here you feel the Spirit's leading to you to encourage or someone that's not here. But we want to create a space here now where we can pause to do what hopefully we create space for in our everyday lives, and that's to listen for God's Spirit to apply God's Word into our lives and to others. So let's take a moment, and then we'll go to the tables. Father, we thank you that you are here with us. And we pray now that you give us the boldness uh, to believe what we see in the bread and the cup. That for all who have trusted in Jesus as their king, that your body is given and your blood is
has shed and that now there is no condemnation. And we pray for any who might be here who haven't trusted Jesus, that they would come to know the good news of his kingdom and his promises. And we pray also that you give us not only the boldness to believe these things as we taste and see your salvation, but to share encouragement with one another as we don't come to your table as mere individuals, but in a common union, a communion with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.